0: my name is Nick we are continuing the series in Nehemiah and uh, we've been in the series for about uh, five or six weeks we are in chapter 10 and um, I was thinking about this when I was working in the garden the other day if if you overheard me working in the garden or building something you would be convinced that I was working with animate objects in other words the amount of speech that is coming out of my mouth, it's speech, it's not cursing all the time. It's, it's speech, it's, I'm, I'm literally, I'm talking to this. It's like, why is this not working? I don't understand like this thing, why? Why can I not get a music stand that doesn't seem to be demon possessed every Sunday morning, okay? And I'll be talking to these things. This is the most amazing thing that, that you may be surprised is no brick has ever talked back me. No piece of wood has ever said, no, just take it easy, this hurts a little bit. Now, that, that doesn't happen. But equally, no brick has ever said to me, no, I don't want to be put there. I'd rather be put there. Uh, no, no brick has said to me, no, you know that brick, I don't like that brick, don't put me next to that brick. Actually, I feel like I look better if you cut me this way instead of that way. It, that doesn't happen. In and, and the story of Nehemiah, we, we see that actually the building of the physical things was quite easy. And the restoring of the people was what took a long time. The restoring of the people was um, littered by success and failure, success and failure, success and failure. And the reason why the Israelites were in the situation they were in is not because they built the wall with bad material. It's not because all of a sudden a tornado came through and ripped through the walls and hit the gates down. It's because they were disobedient to the covenant that God had given them. And God had promised through the prophets that this would happen if they weren't to live a distinct life. And so what happens now, we find ourselves that Nehemiah, with the rest of the crew of people, have come back to Jerusalem, with Ezra, the temple has been restored, the walls around Jerusalem have been restored, the gates have been set in place, and the people recognize that the reason that this has happened is because they've not been obedient to the commands of Moses. And so last week, we spoke about the fact that they confessed that actually they realized that these are the areas in which they had not fulfilled the commands of God. And now we're at a place where they really want to prove they're serious, so they take an oath. We look at Nehemiah 10, verses 28 to 39. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge, which means even young people but that could at least understand what was happening and understanding, joined with their brothers and their nobles to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land We will not take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every day. And we also take upon ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel for all of the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and all the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offerings to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar for the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord. I'm going to skip to verse 39. For the people of Israel and all the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, I don't know if you noticed, literally every single person in every category is covered by that. People, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants. Do you remember when we talked about who built the wall? Everyone built the wall. Who is making this oath and curse? Everyone is making this oath and curse. And, And what was it that they were promising? It's interesting because there were so many extensive laws in the Mosaic Covenant. But there are four distinct things. Uh, that the Israelites are saying that we are committing ourselves to these things. They committed themselves to the fact that they would not intermarry. They committed themselves to the fact that they would um, keep the year of Jubilee. So every seven years what would happen is they would leave a piece of ground fallow and every 49 years, the seventh of the seven, uh, they would release everyone from debt. Uh, They would not trade on the Sabbath because the Sabbath day was holy. Um, And they would give personally for the work of the temple to continue. Now, all these things were things that their their fathers had promised but were not able to live up to. And they recognized that and understood that. And so they're saying, okay, these are the things that we are promising to do. Why these four things? These are things that made the Israelites incredibly distinctive around the nations in which they were in. So the three things that we're going to look at today, when, when we read these Old Testament scriptures, we ask ourselves, Are these areas of distinctiveness applicable to us today? And I would say, yes, they are in a way. Because what they are, are glory channels for us to be able to bring glory to the Father by the way in which we manage these things. Uh, There is an Australian called Mark Sayers who's incredibly bright. And I wish I'd come up with this. Uh, But but he says that because of social media, we are actually attached to this global nervous system that functions on fear and anxiety. And what happens is Jesus has called us to be, and I love this term, Jesus has called us to be a non-anxious presence in a world full of fear, suspicion, and anxiety. Jesus says to us, do not worry about the things that the Gentiles run after. And that's what we've been called to. We've been called to be a non-anxious presence in a culture, a world, a society that is focused on outrage, anger, and anxiety. And how do we do these things? And I want to suggest this morning that it's those three areas that, that the Israelites looked at in terms, of, in terms of the way in which they manage their relationships, their time, and their money is what makes us the most distinct. These three areas, let's be honest, are the areas that produce the most amount of anxiety for all of us. And the way in which we deal with our relationships, whether, uh, whether it's male-female relationships, friendships, partnerships... The way we handle our time and the way we handle our money are three of the biggest areas that bring us fear and anxiety. And so as we look at that, let's look at what we can learn um, from this text in Nehemiah. Nick, are you saying that we are not supposed to intermarry? Is the Bible telling us that interracial marriage is incorrect? No. Uh, The the reason that God is saying to not marry... Oh, sorry about that, Gary. Oh, we're done with that. The, the reason that God always talked about who you married was it was less important who you married and more important as to who you worship. Now, when you look back, you remember that Moses actually had an Ethiopian wife. And so the idea of intermarriage was not this taboo, but it was always common with this. Do not give your sons to marry the Canaanites, the Perizzites, all the ites. Why? What, what was the reason for that? Because you're better than them? What is the reason for that? For some kind of racial... Pu- no because they will lead you astray to worship their gods. That was always the reason that intermarriage was not allowed. And so when we look at that, it's not who, the focus is not who we marry, but who we worship. Now, it's not unimportant who we marry. Uh, When I was in South Africa, I um, handed Kiona over to Marcus, and Marcus said to me, you know, Nick, I remember when you first started dating, Karen, and I got a phone call from Jim. And Jim is uh, Karin's dad, and Jim says, "Marcus, you gotta help me." So let me let me show you why, okay, right? <laughs> he says, "Right, okay, you gotta help me." Karin brought this guy home. He's got long hair. He doesn't wear shoes. He wears skirts, um, and uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do with him, you know. Um, the uh, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. This is, a, this is, my, this is my 21st. Yeah, uh, sorry, people, let me explain what this is. This is a pay phone. Okay? So millennials, you used to put money in this to be able to call someone, you know, before we had cell phones. It matters who you marry. And this was the thing that, that Marcus said. He said he, he, he asked Jim, he says, does he love Jesus? And Jim said he loves Jesus and he loves his church. Uh, You know what? You can cope with just about anything. (laughs) And he did cope with just about anything because I love Jesus and I love his church. And and for me now, as my daughters are 18, 16, and 14, and I know not exactly 16, like just for the purposes of clarity, or non-clarity, I guess, um, I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about what kind of man my daughters are going to marry, if they marry. Um, And so the idea of who we marry and how we manage our relationships is important. Why? To the extent that it helps us worship God or that it draws us away from worshiping God. Car and I have personally witnessed men and women that have been led astray, not necessarily by worshipping other gods, but in the context of their marriage, um, have begun to worship a god in their image. And Kar and I have have literally seen men led astray, women led astray, by the kind of people that they marry. And it's not unimportant, and it's not just marriage. Can we take that down? So... Um, the, the, this is, And we've spoken about this with the, with the God and Sex series as well. The reason that we need to, to create a non-anxious presence in the presence of a society full of fear and anxiety is we can't behave like m- marriage is the pinnacle of satisfaction and therefore, in the context of human relationships, unless you are married, you won't be satisfied. That is another way in which our relationships are able to express something of the glory of God, a satisfied singleness. And marriages that the center of which is God and His purpose and His church is something that is so unique, it is a glory channel for God to come. It's not just marriages as well. It's friendships. It's business partnerships. um, It's everyone, even dating relationships. It's every relationship that we have that has the ability to shape us or we have the ability to shape that person. Jesus hung out with everybody. Literally, he hung out with kings. He hung out with uh, the religious elite. He hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And the one key thing about Jesus was that he was never shaped by them. He loved them unconditionally, but he refused to be shaped by them and ended up shaping them by his love and affection and also by the declaration of truth that he would consistently speak of. When we love our God with greater fervor, when we're more focused on what it means to be engaged in His mission, when we understand Him more clearly because of the, re- the relationships that we engage in, we live in a way that is counterculture. Now, does that mean that we don't love people that don't agree with us? Does that mean that we don't engage in relationships with people that don't have the same set of values as us? No, that's not what that means, and I've covered that when we spoke about Jesus. But it does mean... There is this nuance in terms of us being a distinct people that are shaped by gospel imperatives rather than being shaped by what the world says is important to us. And remember, what the world says is important to us is our relationships, our time, and our money. It all belongs to us, and we get to make those decisions. The reason these are important facts to look at is because um, if we understand and we commit to God the way in which we relate with one another, it... It helps us to not make marriage God or our Savior, whether we're married or not. And that's part of the thing that was being taught to the Israelites. Consider the glory that comes to the Father. Consider the non-anxious presence that we can bring when two very different flawed human beings covenant, regardless of what happens, that they will stay together in a way that is glorifying to God They may have ups, they may have lows, but the ultimate thing that remains is the aroma of love and affection for one another. Think of how much glory comes to God and and what a non-anxious presence we can be when, when single people are satisfied, even looking towards marriage, but understand that they are no less human and no less fulfilled than those that are married. Think about what it looks like to extend love to someone that you don't agree with without having to pull back the truths that you know are foundational to your life. Think about what a non-anxious presence that is. The second thing that they committed to was the idea of the Sabbath, the holiness of the Sabbath, how they spend their time. Now I want to say this. There were cultures out there that married. There were cultures out there that had temples. So remember we're talking about marriage and and, uh, settings. There were no cultures out there that had this idea that one day out of the week you would cease from all your work and you would commit that to a time of communal worship and joy and engagement with your community and God. This was what made the Israelites incredibly unique. No other culture had this. Other cultures had marriage, they had temples, they had priests, they had all of these kinds of things, but they did not have this idea of the Sabbath. And for us, what happens is it pushes against this idea of work as our functional savior. Work, success career being the thing that actually gives us meaning this whole idea of a work-life balance that's big right now right everyone is talking about your work-life balance who's the center of that question though you are it's like is it working for you and let's be honest the companies that want you to engage in a work-life balance why are they doing that it's good for the bottom line Okay? It means that you'll probably stay there longer. It means staff turnover will be lower. And it means ultimately they'll make more profit and their shareholders will be happy. They're not worried, honestly, about whether this work is becoming an idol. They're worried about how effective you are for their goal, ultimately. And so work-life balance is important. But it's got to be important to the extent that you are displaying the glory of the one who called you out of darkness into life. Now, this is not just for you. Uh, is it good for you? Of course it's good for you. Is it healthier for you? Of course it's healthier for you. But that's not why we do that. And when we're called into Sabbath, we need to understand that the main overarching theme of the Sabbath is this. It's not just a time to squirrel away and be alone. Com- the Sabbath was never an individual time in the time of the uh, of Israelites. Of, of Israelite. It was communal. It was a party. It was worshipful, it was intentional, it was rhythmic, and it was good for us, and it was commanded for us. We were designed to rest regularly. I said this to Karen often, because sometimes I struggle with my sleep. I'm like, if God designed me, He could have designed me not to require any sleep, right? I mean, that would have been much more efficient. So to design someone that didn't require any rest and could just charge for it. No, God designed to my body, everything is designed in seasons, even my body is designed to rest. Part of that is the physical reality and the way in which we were designed, but part of that is God's opportunity to actually slow us down and say rest. This morning in the in the pre-service prayer, Stephen and Karen just reminded us um, that rest is not kind of a temporary reprieve from the anxiety that is around it. Like I have all these things to worry about and I'm just going to stop worrying about them, have them in the back of my mind because I know tomorrow I'll start worrying about them again. Rest is actually being able to give those anxieties to God and say these are the things that are freaking me out. It's not trying not to think about those things. It's actually bringing them to God in the context of the Sabbath and say Father this is a day created for you. I have all these things that I'm thinking about but please I'm laying, these, um, I'm laying these at the foot of your cross, and I want you to help me with them so that I'm not just not thinking about them. I'm actually giving them to you. There's a, there's a slightly different understanding when we enter Sabbath and when we enter rest in that way. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. There is, there is a work to do, but it's easy in life because he's with us and he's showing us how to do that. it make sense? Think of the glory that comes to God. Think of the non-anxious presence that we can create when someone refuses a promotion because they want to spend more time with their family. Now think of the glory that comes to God where, where you are intentionally taking time out and you're telling people, this is time that I'm setting aside to be with my family, my broader family, my faith community family, and to be with God. Think of, think of the glory that comes to God when someone looks at you and sees a healthy, engaged Whole human being. The last one is the practical provision for the temple. In verse thirty-one, the Israelites say, "And we will forego the crops in the seventh year and the exaction of the debt." And again, this was something incredibly unique um, that every seven years they would they would not grow crops in a specific area, um, and for two reasons. One. Because the land rested, and anyone that is agricultural will know that actually, wow, God knew what he was doing, and this is actually better for the land. But secondly, it, it gave people around them an opportunity to see that we are not going to squeeze every bit of seed that we can out of this because our hope is not in this field. Our hope is in God. And the way in which we look at that is our attitudes to towards Gain towards work, towards debt is very similar to that. Let's squeeze everything we can out of that because if we don't, what is going to happen to me? And we reach this age where there's so much retirement enough. Am I putting enough away? And those things are good, but ultimately when you slow down, which is why Sabbath is so important, and you think to yourself, where does my hope lie? Does it lie in this field? Am I able to leave that field alone? Am I able to trust God with that? They say that we will not neglect the house of our God. If how we engage in our relationships and how we think about work in the context of our own time, then how we engage with regards to our money is probably one of the biggest areas of difference between those that are Christ followers and those that are not. We are to provide resources. We will provide resources, not just for the temple, they say, but we're also going to provide the resources for the Levites whose job it is To keep temple worship going. I heard something the other day. It's just better for you. Your life is better if you're just more generous. Now that's true. I mean, I have yet to meet kind of an angry, generous person. I've never met someone like, yeah, you know. I've never met someone that's just, you know, a little bit tightly wound and angry and generous at the same time. There is something about generosity that affects more than just your pocketbook. It just affects your general nature. It's also when you're more generous, you're less anxious. But it's not just for that. This this person on the radio had, had part of it right. It is better for us. Generous people are just generally better people. It's because we want to display how generous God is. Where ultimately when the question comes is, why are you doing that? The reason is, how can I not? I have received something of unending value that I will never be able to pay back, that I don't deserve, and God has called me to live in a way that mirrors that in the context of that society. How can I not be generous? The question we should be asking is not, how can I be generous? The question we should be answering is, how can I not? If God so loved us that the thing that he did was, he gave. He gave his son to us. Generosity is something that will show an anxious, fearful, suspicious world just how different the God that you're serving is. This church has been faithful financially, but I believe that God is going to call us to greater levels of financial sacrifice, not just because of a building, but because what we want to do is elevate the image that people have of God in the context of the city around us and actually say, someone said this to me on Wednesday night, That that ultimately, the things that we do, not just the building, but the things that we do as we affect the city, that people will say, how did you do that? We did that because we serve a mighty God. We did that because we serve a generous God. We did that because we serve a powerful God. And we did that because we want to mirror Him in His generosity. We want to mirror Him in this non-anxious way of living so that we don't hold on to everything just in case something bad happens one day. This prevents money from becoming our God and our Savior and Jesus spoke a lot about that. Consider the glory that comes to the Father. Consider the idea of, of being a non-anxious presence in this world when you just decide to bless someone with money. You just decide to give someone. Consider the non-anxious presence that you Uh, that you will show someone when in the context of a tight budget God says to you I want you to do this and you say okay God I don't know how this is going to work out but I choose to believe you. Consider the glory that comes to God when generosity means you aren't able to buy that thing that you wanted or you aren't able to go where you wanted to go but you still decide to be generous. Consider the glory that comes to God ultimately when nobody knows about how generous you've been that person in that situation. Consider the glory that comes to God when we are financially generous not only in the context of our church community but we are financially generous even to people that we don't think deserve our generosity. Consider the glory that comes to our Father when we act in that way. We need to recognize the privilege of giving not the obligation of giving. You know one of the things that we are trying to teach our kids is when Someone gifted them with money and the first question that we ask is, okay, who are you going to bless with what you have received? And You have received something. Now, the first thing you should be thinking about is how do I redirect that blessing so that more of this gets multiplied? But now this oath and this curse is a little confusing to me. It's a little worrying. Verse 29 says, Join with the brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, His rules and His statutes. So every time someone says, I'm going to do something, there's always this escalation, right? I'll do something. I promise I'll do something. No, I, if I don't do something, then I will do this, just to prove how serious I am about doing that. It always escalates from promise To oath, to curse. I swear I will do this. And the motivation is never a good motivation. It's always loss or fear or judgment or embarrassment. Most of the time, we're making oaths because we haven't done what we said we were going to do the last time we told that person. Okay? So we say, okay, John Mark, I will do this. And John Mark's like, yeah, whatever. That's what you said the last time. No, I swear. I swear this time. I will do this, and if I don't do it by then, I will give you double the amount. You know? uh, I've done this in a couple of stupid ways, right? Uh, I thought this was pretty safe, and I said to Karin, if you, if, you if you hit three free throws out of ten, we'll go to in and out. I'm like, that is a safe kind of promise. I, you know, because really it, it, it's not going to happen, you know? so much to my dismay she hit three in a row from the beginning right and then she says and then she says and now what I said that was so lucky that if you even get two other out of the ten we'll get milkshakes too and the girls are like come on we can do this you know and just as I thought it was like number four boom number five boom number six I'm counting this down and then got the five so we went for in and out and you know uh and, and more checks. there's there's always this sense in which you feel like you've got to attach something extra to what you're saying and this is not what god is asking us to do there isn't that sense of trying to prove how serious we are to god how many of you have done that i, mean, I know that i was like okay god this time like this time, I swear that if I do this again, then I will do X. Or I will serve in children. If I do that again, I will serve in kids. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Serving your kids is a joy. You know what I mean? Does this mean that promises or pledges are wrong? Doesn't Jesus tell us, don't promise? Well, it's a little more nuanced than that. In Matthew 5 and in Matthew 23... What had happened is Jesus was talking to the rabbis particularly and he was talking about these extra-biblical laws that the rabbis had instituted that were conditions for a binding oath. In other words, the rabbis would say if you swear by the gold that's on the altar that is what's important. If you swear by the altar then you're not bound to the oath. And so they were creating this environment where people could take oaths like this. Right? Now... Some of you, again, are too young to know this, but like, you know, your mom would ask you a question and you would cross your fingers at the back and for whatever reason, I don't even know why, that meant you didn't have to tell the truth. Is this a thing? Like, you people know what this is about, right? Okay, right. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the idea that we should not ever say, I will or will not do something. In fact, Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. There should be no other thing that makes you not do something or do something other than you saying yes or no. So it's not the idea of saying that we're going to do something that is wrong. It's the idea of, and if I don't, or I promise um, on the life of my children, or I promise on, by Apollo, because there were lots of religions that were saying, by Apollo, I promise to do this, by God, but they couldn't say God because that would have been, um, a rejection of the law because you couldn't take God's name in vain. You couldn't say, but they would say, buy the temple or buy the gold on the temple. And so what Jesus is saying is, is not, no, that you, you, he's not saying don't make decisions. Don't make um, these kind of resolutions to live in a certain way. It's the why and the how that we are making these decisions that is the problem. To engage more intentionally into areas where the Word of God the Spirit of God or this community are convicting us is not wrong. Otherwise, why are we here every Sunday? We're here because we understand that we're in the process of sanctification. And unless we're in a position to actually say, ooh, that needs adjustment. Spirit of God, would you help me with this? Well, that is, that is a resolve. That is actually saying, I, I choose to do this. The Bible is full of words like decide, resolve, covenant, walk in. Those are intentional decisions that we are making to to follow him and to be more Christ-like. But it's not swearing. It's not saying, God, I swear that if I I don't do this, then this can happen to me. No, because all of that has been taken care of. And the curse has been taken care of, and we'll talk about that. Marriage is a promise. It's a vow. We stand up in front of God and in front of witnesses, and we say, by the grace of God, this is what I promise." Our members' covenant is a promise to the rest of the members in this community. I recognize that I need your help. I'm humbling myself in the context of this community and want to be part of it. It is an understanding that God has called us to live in a countercultural way, but we can't do it by ourselves. So how can we be this non-anxious presence? The only way we can do it is through the one who became the curse for us. 1 John 4 verse 8 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Now that's a big fancy word that basically means this. To be the curse bearer or the one that turns away the wrath of God. That Jesus took our curse so that we no longer were cursed by sin and death and the devil. The new covenant is a complete reversal of what happened. Jesus came because we could not fulfill what it looked like to live as renewed human beings restoring this world so that God would get the glory. The law was simple. If you do this, then I will do that. And when Jesus came and said, you can't do this, so I will do that. Under the law, it was the people that took an oath. Remember, in Nehemiah, they are swearing. It was the people that took an oath. In the age of the new covenant, it is God himself that takes an oath and swears by himself that he will fulfill it. In Hebrews 6, verse 16, it says of God, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final confirmation. In other words, it puts an end to all arguments. It's like, I will do this, and I swear by so-and-so that I will do this. And God's saying that he swears by himself. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie and there's no one greater to appeal to other than God, God is saying my nature and character is this, I cannot lie. But if that's not enough for you, I swear by myself that I will bring a new covenant to you. We have fled To this refuge, we have a strong encouragement to hold fast for the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, or literally a proto-runner, on our behalf. Jesus says, "I will live the way that you were, you that God intended for you to live. I will die the death that you deserve to die because of original sin." And I will go where you cannot go. And I will send my life-giving spirit to you. The curse has been broken by Jesus. That's why we don't need to curse ourselves anymore by saying, I swear that if I don't do this, may this curse come upon you. That's over. You know when someone says, I'll take care of it? Have you ever been in that moment where you're like, "Oh I I don't know what to do. And then someone says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. What are the two things you're thinking about when someone says that. My thing is, well, can you? Like, do you have the skill to do that? You know, so so when someone says, don't worry, I'll take care of it, my first thing is like, no, you can't. I mean, you may want to, but you can't. You don't have the skill to take care of this. So that doesn't help me. You have not helped my anxiety. Thank you very much, you know. It's like, pat me on the back. I'll take care of this. Yes, you want to, but you won't. So what happens is, is when someone says, I'll take care of it, we look at two things. We look at their ability to do that, their skill, and we look at their nature. And when God says, I will take care of it, like he had, we look at his ability to do that, and there is no one more powerful, more sovereign, more um, independent of anything that God, and there is no one whose character we can rely on more than actually saying, God, if you said, I'll take care of it. I believe it. My car may come to me and say, I'll take care of it. They have the brakes in the car squeaking. She'll be like, I'll take care of it. (laughs) I'll be like, I know she wants to. I can trust her character. I know that everything within her wants to serve and wants to be of help. But I also know that she can't do it. Now, I know that when God says, I'll take care of it, not only has it, but He continues to. And He continues to extend His power And he continues to show his character every time he says, I will take care of you. And that's what he's done. We're not trusting someone that thinks they can do something. We're trusting someone who said, it is finished. It is done. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has flooded our lives with the Holy Spirit. The law said that the curse will fall on your children. But in the new covenant, the curse fell on the child of God. Under the law, we had to muster our own strength to fulfill these oaths that were made in the old covenant. In the new covenant, we are empowered by the Spirit to live in this way. It is not our promise we rest on. It is on His power and His promise. Galatians 3 verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, crucified Christ, hung on the tree. Why? So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham, which is what we're talking about with Nehemiah, which is what God promised everyone, that if you place your faith in God, you will have the blessings of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we may receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus knew we couldn't do this alone. Jesus knew that even when the debt of our sin had been paid, we needed something else. Which is why he left and went to the Father and said, It's better that I go so that you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will flood you with the ability to live in the way that you were always designed to live. To live in a way that shows a non-anxious presence. To live in a way that actually can overcome sin. To live in a way that loves and restores the world that we were called to love and restore. We cannot be a non-anxious presence without living distinct lives. We cannot live distinct lives without understanding that the curse has been broken off us by Jesus. We cannot live a life that glorifies God unless we decide and resolve to step into what that looks like. And we cannot fulfill that resolve without His Word, without His people, and without His Spirit. If we are to be a non-anxious presence, we cannot derive our word. From the way we spend our time, from the kinds of relationships that we have, from the kind of money that we hold on to, status, success, power, we cannot derive our worth from it. The curse is broken. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The promise remains firm. Our hope is steadfast and sure. Let's trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, your word says, that the stories that we read in the Old Testament are not only for our edification, but for our teaching. And Father, I want to thank you that we don't have to stand and make some kind of curse or oath. I want to thank you that the curse has been broken because Jesus, you became the curse. I want to thank you that we don't have to white-knuckle some kind of resolution we can just stand and say God we want to live as a non-anxious presence by the way in which we deal with our relationships our time and our money and your spirit will enable us to do that but Father we do as a community want to stand and resolve that we do want to be a non-anxious presence we do want to be glory channels that when people look at the way in which we handle our singleness and the way in which We treat our husbands and wives at at the way in which we are generous uh, with our money, at the way in which the world does not shape us in terms of our time, but we are intentional about spending time with you and your people. So as we turn our our affection and our attention to you through song, I want to pray, Spirit of God, that you would minister. And I want to pray if there are areas of anxiety uh, that that we are feeling whether it's anxiety in terms of relationships whether it's anxiety in terms of of status career power whether it's anxiety in terms of finances or many i want to pray by your grace that your spirit would come and reveal that and that your spirit would come and empower us to trust you by faith that you are here i want to pray if there are people that feel cursed in these areas jesus i want to pray that you would remind them that you have lifted You have flooded our souls with your spirit, and that as we trust in you, we know that you're shaping us into something that will bring you.